We're going to be in the book of Acts today, Acts chapter 2. You can take your Bibles and turn there. Before I have you stand for Acts chapter 2, I just want to do a little bit of a brief intro this morning before we get into the text. Um, as human beings, you and I live as finite creatures in a specific time in history and in a specific place. Okay, so you and I exist and live here together in, you know, America, more specifically in Oklahoma in the year 2023. Now, living here in this place and at this time, we are impacted mentally, emotionally, our conscious is informed by the time and the place where we live. We call that culture. And culture is the way that people live and think. And that has a bearing on us as an individual. Now, for nearly 6,000 years, people lived differently than we do. Uh, people lived in more rural, agricultural settings where immediate community um, played a much larger role in the identity of the person. You know, even the Bible, it would describe someone and that person would say, well, I am the son of the father's name, and often they're identified by the community they lived in. People thought of themselves in terms of not the id uh, or the individual, but they thought themselves as part of a larger community, and that is largely lost on us today. In the last 150 years or so, much of that has changed. Modernity, um, a fancy word for the effects of the industrial and technological revolution in our world um, that brought people together from an agricultural setting more into cities and even larger communities like we might live in here in Tulsa, Broken Arrow, Wausau, Jinx, these different places. That is not the way people have traditionally lived. That, that is a modern way of living. And it brought people into closer proximity, but it isolated them. And that's so interesting in a much greater way. People only have a capacity really to be close, and I mean really intimately close to about a 50, 100, up to 150 other people. And then of course there's an attachment there, you, you can make greater associations. So people tended just to back away as a result of modernity. And we began to think differently. And then even exasperating that problem is not just modernity, but then it's the postmodern world we live in. Now, most of us just think this way. We don't really put a, a tag or label to it. But postmodern thinking is this, is it devalues absolute truth in favor of opinion, um, perspective, um, multiculturalism and pluralism, and all these things have an impact on us in a way we don't even perceive because we're fish swimming in the water of the culture. And so then we too, without thinking, often come to church and as Christians, with some of that cultural wash on us. And so we, we still retain the right to have opinions and or to see things from a perspective. And we, we place that on equal footing with absolute truth and even biblical doctrine. And we have devalued absolute truth. And we are deeply impacted by this truth is relative. And if truth is relative, then biblical doctrine becomes devalued and less relative. 
today thinking biblically, and I mean seriously, genuinely biblical, has been diluted. In the church today, opinions and feelings run rampant over truth. And this postmodern modernity change is not benign. Culture has greatly suffered for it. If you don't believe me, just turn on the news. Look what's happening in our schools. Look at our culture. I mean, it is fracturing and falling apart at a pace. It's hard to put the band-aids back on it to hold it together. This change has also affected the church and the people in it. The social and psychological ills of society have infiltrated the people of God in the churches they attend. And the results for years have been an institution, the church, in rapid decline. Now, replacing it in good intention has been the parachurch and sometimes, you know, a home group. Both intended to be a help. Instead, they have become drivers in the absence of a strong authority figure leading them. And they've added to this idea that Christianity can be done apart from the church. That's not Bible. That is not Bible. It... It may carry the vestige of a Christian sentiment, but parachurch and home study, and those can be tools and servants of the church, but they are not substitutes for it. In these non-church groups, in order to get along with the diversity of opinion, doctrine has to play a lesser role. And then the church, in turn, trying to compete with this, adopts a business style. It overutilizes advertising. And marketing, it, it tries too hard to create creative attempts to grab the attention of a video-crazed, image-oriented, picture-driven culture that finds themselves as a consumer, even of this place. Please me or I'll leave. Provide for me or I'll go someplace else. The church has capitulated. And now we beg and plead for membership instead of asking for the pulpit for your commitment. And today we are deeply influenced by a transitory behavior, shallow thinking, biblical illiteracy. People who don't think, even when they read a biblical truth as truth, they reserve the right to have an opinion about it. And I say all that with a smile. Because <laughs> my heart really is happy that we're going to, some, we're going to butt up against that thinking in the text today. So let me ask you to stay with me, if you would, as we read a couple of verses from the book of Acts, chapter 2, beginning in verse number 41. Acts, chapter 2, verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word, people who were saved, were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they, the 3,000 plus the disciples present, maybe another 120 more, continued, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles, and all that believed were together. All that believed, they were, 
the Bible says, together and had all things common. And they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, the group, continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking of bread from house to house. They did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Our Heavenly Father, I pray the next few moments as we consider this dynamic and instructive text that, Lord, you would help us to discern, Lord, through our thinking, what is biblical versus what is culturally, Lord, instructive. And, and all too often in our world, those are at odds within our own heart. And, and so, Lord, I, I pray you'd help me as I preach this text in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing. These verses just read bring us to the conclusion of the story of the receiving of the Holy Spirit by the apostles, by the disciples that were all gathered together at the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And the dramatic events that sprang forth from that reception and receiving of the Holy Spirit. And in view here in these verses, uh, in Peter's preaching, we see a response from the crowd that is gathered here uh, to hear the compelling sermon made, the case made from the Old Testament by Peter that Jesus was and is the Messiah and God's provision for the reconciliation and the restoration of Israel and more than that for the redemption of the whole world. And on this day of Pentecost after Peter's incredible sermon that we rehearsed last week, the Bible tells us that 3,000 souls were saved on this day of Pentecost. More people were added to the kingdom of God than throughout the entirety of Jesus' three and a half years of ministry. This is the beginning of Jesus' words of prophecy and fulfillment, where he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that he that believeth on me, the works that I do, he shall do also, and greater works than these because I go to the Father. And of course we know there at the Father's right hand, He sent the Holy Spirit to rest on all the disciples and all those who would believe, which then can multiply the work of God, which allows for a greater work in this world than even Christ to do if physically present. But what comes next in our text is crucial to God's plan in reaching the world with His gospel, and that plan to replicate disciples. To pass on from one follower to another new follower of Christ. The mission of the great commission. This transformation, a transformation from lost sinner to believer to true disciple. Uh, we, we see that process occurring in our text. And it occurs in the institution that God created to encourage and equip his followers. It is what Paul called the pillar and the ground of the truth. And that institution that helps us propagate the gospel is called the local New Testament church. Amen. Just as we learned last week about the primacy of preaching is never to be undervalued in this institution and to always be at the forefront of the priority of everything we do, so too is the church to have priority in our lives and in our faith. The Bible tells that God loved and died for the church. And that is the expression of his body that we are to be a part of, 
to be participant in and we are to exercise our gifts and contribute to. We don't do that to, same, uh, to some amorphous uh, global universal church. We fulfill all the commands of the New Testament primarily in the context of this body. This is where we submit. This is where we yield. This is where we hear the preaching. Here's where we give. Here's where we exercise our gifts. Here's where we love one another. Here's where we come together in this place and other localities like it all around the world. The local assemblies, the ecclesia in the Greek of God, where believers are called scripturally not to forsake but to attend the church. The entirety of the New Testament really is a, a story of the planting of new local churches. Churches in Philippi and Galatia and Ephesus, in the regions of Macedonia and Galatia, in Antioch, in Thessalonia, in Colossae, and etc. All these letters were written to people or pastors in those churches to be read to those people to then read that, then pass those along to other churches. Paul started and wrote instructions and encouraged to people in local assemblies. I press this point because the idea of a universal amorphous church in terms of biblical practice and participation is foreign to the Word of God. But it is that held belief that allows us all to just kind of float in this Christian world and to think we're playing a part and we're not really part of the plan and provision of God that way. Yes, there is a comprehensive, larger body of Christ made up of all believers that God himself knows. But the functional unit of God's ad advancing and enduring kingdom is the local ecclesia. It's just like saying, it's like saying, it's like undervaluing the institution, the other institution God created, the family. Well, really, let's just have babies and let everybody take care of them. Well, you know, we can have the village idea a little bit, but God's plan is this, is for one man to be married to one woman raising children under the umbrella of their authority, and that is to be the functional unit of society. And when you break down that functional unit of society, you have all the social ills we see today. And when you and I break down the integrity and the value of the local church, we do the same thing to the spiritual body of Christ. We decimate it. The 3,000 souls that were saved in Jerusalem, they were added to the kingdom of God. But they served functionally in the church of Jerusalem. I press again because today we live in a day and time when men desire, maybe decreasing numbers of people desire, to take up the label of Christian and be spiritual but to fail to be faithful adherents and members of a local church. See, they think, well, I can, there's other ways to practice my Christian spirituality. Okay, dude, find that in this Bible for me. And that is not, that is not a function of biblical literacy. That is a function of cultural thinking. People ignorantly claim that they can be Christian and opt out of commitment to a local church. I'm not saying you can't be Christian because you choose not to go to church. I'm just saying that that choice stands in blatant contrast and disobedience to the Word of God. 
who calls us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, not to some universal assembly, but to the local church to which you are a member and belong. It stands in total disregard to the calling in our text and instruction of Paul, John, and Peter, and even Christ himself. That choice demonstrates a complete ignorance and even defiance of the purpose of the saved in Christ, those who the Holy Spirit gifts to share that gift with others in the local congregation, to be a blessing to those in this place. So in that light, calling oneself a Christian and forsaking the assembly together with the body of Christ is an enigma. It is an incongruity. I would say, in a way, it's defiance and rebellion, if not just ill-informed. Okay? You with me? I'm going to force a smile. I feel semi-passionate about it. So I'm going to go a step further. I would say a casual commitment. Okay, you want me to go on? A casual commitment. An aloofness. A guardedness. So I'll come in late and leave early. An unwillingness to dive deep into the fabric and fiber of a local body with a wholehearted commitment, financially, socially, and in service is to dismiss the instruction of the New Testament and to mar marginalize the teaching of the Word of God. And I don't think you and I should take that lightly. I'm going to use this text singularly today as a source among many to make that case. Look at your Bibles, verse number 41 of our text today, where we are told that three thousand souls were saved. We know that because the Bible tells us in that verse that they received the word. The phrase received the word means they heard the word preached, the truth that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. They respond to that truth in repentance. That means they were willingness to then to step out of the world and into the family of God. They proved that through the baptism that they underwent, which caused them then to receive social isolation, even isolation from family for that choice. Today, baptism doesn't carry that same connotation. But then, to receive the word and then be baptized was to remove themselves knowingly and willingly from the social environment they had known all their life and to be placed into something different. And what they became participant in was the body of Christ, but then specifically and locally in the church of Jerusalem. They were baptized, a sign of their identification with Christ, and then added and the word in the Greek literally means put into, part of, made of the fabric of that church. On this day, 3,000 souls were taken out of the kingdom of darkness, placed in the kingdom of God, and they served functionally in the church of Jerusalem going forward. And the Bible tells us that they continued there. They stayed there. They identified there. In verse 42, look there with me. The Bible says, and they continued steadfastly. Continue steadfastly in the Greek is one word. It's one phrase. It means they persisted and persevered even against difficulty. These people were so committed to Christ and the church that they were there every time they met, even though it was difficult, 
maybe as an individual, but more in the text, even though it was difficult in terms of the community and society. They gave themselves as members of that church to the apostles' doctrine. It's where we get didactic from, didactic. Didactic teaching is the kind of teaching that Jesus did. It's the teaching that we used to get as older people in the schools we went to. It's a teaching where some of the authority speaks and the people here, you know, make sure that's true and then they adhere to it. And that's what these new believers did. They went to the church of Jerusalem. They did so steadfastly and persistently, even though difficult. And they listened to the teaching of the apostles, of this doctrine, this truth about Jesus Christ, and the purpose of his life and what it means to them. And this, this moral and ethical instruction that ensued after that. They gave themselves to that. And the point I want you to see is they gave themselves to that in the text continually. Ongoing in a committed way. They didn't come and go. They didn't opt in and out. They didn't come when the urge hit them. They didn't show up when the weather was good. They continued steadfastly. And they also did this in fellowship. Koinonia. The word primarily means to share together. It means to be a part, okay, a part of, of a sum, but then to be participant in the sum. I, I'm, in, I'm in the whole, but I'm not just in the whole, I'm contributing to the whole. I'm, a, I, I'm sharing in life. I'm sharing in faith. I'm, I'm giving myself to be there, but more than that, I am sharing who Christ made me for the benefit of the group, koinonia. It means to share together. It means to be together. It means to share together. It means to participate together. That is not the same word as attendance. It's not the same thing as I showed up for church. It means I know you, Jerry. I know you, Mike. I know your names. I know who you are. And I get it here. Hey, there are people who can't all know each other that way. But you can know some. And I know your kids. And I know your hurts. I know your hopes. I know your dreams. I'm here to be a blessing. I'm here to take you a meal. I'm here to serve your kids. I'm here to work in the nursery. I'm going to serve upstairs. I'm going to be in the parking lot. It's not a tender. That's not fellowship. That's not koinonia. That's here as I'm, I'm here as one of you. It's the same thing as being part of a family, a spiritual family. Exercising my gifts in this local assembly, Eastland Baptist Church. And the idea is what comes together ought not come apart so easily as it does in our culture. Thing, people who know each other should not pull apart so easily. They continue steadfastly. The idea of breaking a bread. Some commentators may believe this is, the, this is the Lord's Supper. It's inconclusive. I don't know. Either way, it could be the Lord's Supper. It could simply mean sharing meals. But either way, the larger context is they did that together. Frequently. They broke bread as a church. Breaking bread was a, has been for centuries a metaphor for you're my friend, I'm your friend. We're together. We know each other. We care about each other. And they gave themselves to prayers. So this isn't the kind of prayer where I'm just praying for me. This is corporate prayer. This is the kind of prayer we do here on Wednesday nights. 
where prayer letters read about this church family and its needs. And we beseech the throne of God as a church family on behalf of those individuals together. We pray about the needs of the community and the needs of our church, church together. They as a group came together and they prayed. They heard teaching. They were instructed didactically from the word of God. They listened. They submitted to that on an ongoing, steadfast basis. They continued in that doctrine. They were together in fellowship, knowing each other, committed to one another. And they, and they ate each other's home. There was a kind of hospitality that, that was throughout the church where people knew each other literally over a meal. And they prayed together as a group for individuals and the concerns of the church. Now, this is important to understand all four key elements of the function of a church that these are the functions of a church, yes, but the larger idea is that they did all of those things together. This was an incredible unity. Here's the diversity of believers. You've got to understand, where did these 3,000 people come from? All over the known world. We learned that earlier. These people come from all over the world. These are people who may even spoke partly different languages. We know that from the necessity of tongues that were spoken earlier. Different cultures, different places. And they're all coming here to be members of the church of Jerusalem. And yet in this incredible diversity, they were singleness of heart and unity and oneness. And that unity, along with the miracles performed by the apostles that verified in that day and age that the apostles were speaking authoritatively, the Bible says that people were in awe. They were in awe. Now, it, it, I don't know if it means the people in the church, outside the church. I would say it's all of them. People are like, what is this thing? Look at all these people from all over the world coming together in this incredible act of love and unity because it was observable in those days. And people are like, wow, that's incredible. And I'm sure I was inside. inside like, you know, sometimes I stand here amazed like, wow, we all get along. And if people could see in, and they get along. They love each other. You know, at that time, there's the signs and miracles verifying that God was at work and the people were literally in all themselves. Hey, God is in this place. How do we know it? Because they did all this together in an ongoing way. And I want to say, whenever you see the people of God coming together, continue for a long period of time, God has to be at work. In verse 44, we go right back to the idea of being a part of a church. And all that believed were together. It's almost redundant. And they had all things common. All things, all that believed were together. I want to stop and just say, just as baptism is a first and primary essential act of faith and commitment and identification with Christ, so too is the willingness to be together. I get saved, what do I do next? Well, you get baptized. It's an identification with Christ. What do I do next? Well, you come together. So, I am often Captain Obvious. But can you not see that redundantly in the text? And I want to say to you, if there's some reason you have an unwillingness to come together, that's a problem. That's, that's either a Either you are so far down the road a victim to cultural thinking and or you need to re-examine your spiritual identity in Christ. And I know that's harsh. That's just the only biblical model we have. They came together. 
Again, not in some mystical, you know, ecstatic, feel-good, amorphous way. No, they met together in the church of Jerusalem. And it's not just saying they were together in spirit. Yes, that's coming later. They were together in spirit. But the idea is they came together as a church body in a committed way. It means connected. It means fitted together. So much so, the Bible says they had all things common. It's an interesting phrase in the Greek, and it means again, interesting enough, is that they were willing to share with the other members in the body. They shared things common, like responsibility. They shared commitment. They shared purpose. They, they, they shared caring about each other. And again, in, in, in the diversity of in the plurality of people, they shared equality. Social barriers came down. In the Greek, the word common there actually has a negative connotation. In other words, the idea is, is that when the church came together, they overcame all the negative things so they could all be common. They could all be together. They could all be equal. They shared acceptance and love and kindness. There was no racism, no elitism, no clique, no disparaging comments, no, no gossiping. It was all about equality and love and being of one mind in Christ. And in verse 45, there's just a sharing of, of needs. In verse 45, when the, when the group identified an individual need, they were so part of the group that if they needed to, there was a willingness to, for them to go sell tangible items to meet the need of another individual in genuine need in the church. This isn't communal living, living or some kind of you know, um, elementary communism. It's just this. We're all here. We know each other here. And there's a need over here, and the resource may not be available, but hey, I'll go sell something in the backyard to help you meet that need. There was that kind of spirit in the church. Because they loved and cared about one another. Okay, if 3,120 people can do that, we can do it. We can have that level of commitment. I don't want you to turn the, but I want you to listen to this. The Apostle John speaking in chapter 3 of his first epistle says that we know that we have passed from death into life because we have love for the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. John's really pressing the point. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brothers have need and shove his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? If you're not connected to some of this place to be willing to sacrifice something for the need of someone else, well, how can the love of God be in you? You look at me. Attenders can't do that. Members. People who have a vested interest in the place. They do that. In verse 46, they continue the idea of the model. We'll present this text. This mode, example, and instruction, adding to this thought of up here, continue steadfastly, with the idea in verse 46 of continuing daily together. And they continue daily with one accord, with a shared heart, a shared mind, a shared commitment. And they met in the temple. And that may seem odd as Christians, but in their mind, Jesus was the, he was a Jew. He was the Messiah. The temple belonged to them as much as anybody. 
So for this time, they displayed that their church until it was probably destroyed in 70 AD by Titus. And they began to probably meet in individual houses and to grow to church from there. But the point is they, they met there. And they did so in a happy, glad way, praising God for His goodness. The outworking of that was a cohesive, dynamic church. And this is amazing, that influenced and impacted the community. It was, an, it was kind of an unintended way of evangelism. People just looked at this, oh, what is happening in that place? We want to know. We've got to be a part of that. And they lived such righteous lives. They had credibility. They were validating their goodness. It granted them favor in the community because the way they lived, people who live ethically and uprightly and morally, caring about people, that's going to gain favor in the community. And that in further souls were added, as the text says. So application. It's that time. Okay. I'm going to be real simple. I have one point, and it goes like this. Church is a big deal. Gathering together faithfully in a committed way, in the ways described in this text, it's a big deal, and it's not optional. And every part, anyone who chooses to be here should treat it that way. It's a weariness to beg, plead, push, pull, and encourage people to be where they should be on Sunday and Wednesdays. And it's completely scripturally wrong-headed. And I believe it's a demonstration of biblical ignorance. It's wrong for you to keep other people in the church at arm's length. It's just not, it's not right. You cannot obey any of these words in the text and be that person. To be aloof, to be apart from the group. Hey, look here. I'm glad you come because you maybe enjoy the music. And maybe a fewer number of people think they might get something out of the preaching. But it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. This is a church family. This is where we come together under the banner and cause of Christ under a, a doctrinal alignment to serve Christ and one another. We, we can't operate that way. Much in Western culture drives us towards individualism that minimizes and undermines community. Individuals in their overdone occupation with privacy is not Christian. Privacy fences and locked doors and phobia about groups and internet fears of privacy, piracy, that may be part of the world, but it's not part of the local New Testament church. From the beginning of the creation until no more than a century ago, individuals lived willingly in community. They found meaning and purpose, identity, social, emotional help in community. Thinking about ourselves as individuals is something that is completely new, where your opinion matters more than anyone else's. 
and it's unhealthy. A thousand social and individual ills come from this kind of thinking. Human, human beings are made for community, and when we lack it, we suffer for it, and our, worst, our Western world is falling apart because of it. It's a, it's a partial reason for the brokenness we see all around us, a will, un, unwillingness to submit to authority, an unwillingness to be accountable, an unwillingness to be, to be part and counted as, as a member of a group. It's broken and it's wrong. We are victims to cultural brokenness. And if we are not careful, we're going to become transients, spiritual transients. What's transient mean? Someone who, just, who, who moves from place to place to place to place. Once upon a time, people lived in one place, in one community, going to one church for their whole life. Well, that's, that's so silly. No, that's the way about 5,000 years plus, 2,000 years plus the New Testament, but the whole way the world functioned up until the last century, last maybe two centuries. But the industrialized, modern, postmodern world changed all that. It made all of us transients. We live in transient relationships. Who has lifetime friends? Lifetime marriages. Transient jobs. Well, you know, I'm expected to take the better paying job. I'm not saying you are or you aren't. That's not the point. I'm just simply telling you because of modern values, it's made us transient. Transient homes. Transient beliefs. We are committed to nothing, no one, no place. And when I'm unhappy, I leave. We are shoppers who demand to be pleased. And we are not, we move on. This is from one store to another, one relationship to another, one church to another. And it shows in the way we live in all of its dysfunctionality. It shows in our relationships, and God forbid it shows in the Lord's church. We're transient in church, transient in membership, transient in attendance, transient in commitment, transient in our loyalty. Some people change churches and beliefs like they change their clothes. Say this has no impact. Okay. In 1937, 75% of Americans went to church. Not were members, because like, membership is different. They actually went to church. Today, 47% of Americans identify as Christian. 22% go to church, and that is measured by a once-a-month commitment. A once-a-month commitment. Of that 22% of Americans who go to church, only 33% or less go weekly. You know how small a fraction that is? 
only 33% have any kind of commitment that, are, that would even broach weekly. Now you add other servers to that and we're getting down into fractions. And you take that number and even fractions less actually contribute, actually give, show up two or three times a week. Church is optional. It's really optional. Then we had the COVID phenomenon that decimated these numbers even further. Matter of fact, there's incalculable decimation. And the current numbers are in, uh, unimaginably dis discouraging. So one, between one and two and two, between one and four and two and four, the people who used to go semi-regularly have come back because of the new values we've instituted about safety. I'm not against safety. I'm just reading my Bible and saying that God tells me not to forsake the assembly of myself together with no caveats. And I can't adhere to the apostles' doctrine. I can't give myself to fellowship. I can't do these things that way. We have to do better. We're called to more. You know, I know, I, I spend a lot of my time trying to grow this church, and then I preach something like this. That seemed counterproductive. <clears throat> my job is to do business with the book. What do I want? Would you get on board? Is that fair? Contemporary terms. Just get on board. Like, get in. Just get in. Get involved. Show up to services. What would we have if everyone attended like you did? You show up like you expect the rest of us to be here. Well, we are. But can we build a church with you? Fellowship. Get to know someone. Talk to people. I am, this, this, this is not that good. You've got to have other reasons to be here. And that's each other. That's connectedness. That's fellowship. That's love. That's caring. There's got to be a broader fabric that brings you back than the singularity of preaching and you like the music. Make a commitment to us. Or find a church where you can. And that's not a challenge. It's just like from, the, from in here, that's what I'd want for you. Sincerely. America, in America, Christianity is the fastest declining religion. It is the fastest declining religion in the world. And it has a whole lot to do with modernity, Western thinking, and the dynamics of failing to be committed and loyal to a place. And all the social ills that ensue from that. As a pastor of Eastland Baptist Church, I'm not going to beg you to be here. And neither will I concede to the culture to try to do a dog and pony show for you. 
This is God's church. And if you're a Christian, be a part here or be a part somewhere. Let me ask you to stand.